we do have to earn democracy. And just because my parents had it doesn't mean that it will continue or that my son will inherit it. So you have to fight for it. This is a fight every day. Stay tuned to hear more from Meredith McGeehee, the executive director of Issue One, as she speaks about her efforts to reduce the influence of money on politics. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We are here today with Meredith McGeehee, the executive director of Issue One, a former policy director at Campaign Legal Center, and a former senior vice president of Common Cause and the former president of the Alliance for Better Campaigns. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? I've been working in the public interest uh, for more than 35 years uh, as a public interest lobbyist. I've been a registered lobbyist since 1987, working on mostly democracy issues, though I have worked on other issues like global health and child nutrition issues and school violence issues as a lobbyist and as an advocate. Uh, it's public interest lobbyist. I like to think that what we're trying to do here is ensure that public officials have accurate information about the impact of policies to give them some innovative policies, new ideas, so they don't just get stuck in the same argument over and over again, to uh, help the media in- interpret what's going on in terms of the politics. A lot of times, you know, in politics, uh, there's a lot of misinformation or, you know, people use information and disinformation, I guess I would say. And they often come to people like me who can translate kind of what's going on and what's really happening. Uh, and to some degree, the expertise I've developed is understanding how politics and Washington in particular work and how do you make it better? How do you make our democracy more robust and stronger? Because every generation earns their own democracy, even though it's maybe your birthright and maybe something you've inherited. Uh, every generation has to go back and earn it. So recently you've been referencing the Office of Congressional Ethics in the House and have written and spoken extensively upon the need to create a similar entity in the United States Senate. You referred to the U.S. Senate as a black hole where all ethical complaints go to die. Uh, What sort of information are you providing to members of the United States Senate that might help convince them that there is some sort of challenge with handling ethical inquiries in their institution? Well, the first thing I try to do is provide them accurate information, factual information. In this day of, uh, you know, fake news, there's a real struggle to just get a better understanding of what's happened and why there are problems explain that there, in fact, are solutions. I testified twice um, back uh, when the House was considering the creation of the Office of Congressional Ethics, once in 1997 and once in 2007, 
uh, in support of creating an Office of Congressional Ethics and attempted to convince the Senate to do so as well. They did not do so. And so since that time, what you've seen in the Senate is this black hole. Now, they're not going to change that procedure just because someone like me comes up and asks them to do that. In the end, they're going to make a change if they feel like there is public pressure for them to do so, that there is media scrutiny, that their their, uh, constituents care about this, that they are believe that in some ways they would be better served if they had a, an independent office there in the Senate that could look at af- ethics allegations. And as I often say to, to politicians, you have an interest in going someplace and making sure that they do an investigation so that when or if they clear you, that decision has credibility. That serves you as the politician. If you're going to an office uh, like now at the Senate Ethics Committee, where it's seen as the old boys club, and someone lobs an ethics allegation at you, and the Senate Ethics Committee doesn't do anything, you have no way to get clean. You have no way to convince your public that, in fact, there wasn't a problem there because the Senate Ethics Committee has no credibility with the public. So in late 2017, Senator Al Franken uh, was caught up in the Me Too movement and uh, had expressed his interest in having uh, the complaint be referred to an ethics committee. Uh, And ultimately, he ended up uh, resigning from the U.S. Senate. Can you explain what you would have liked to have seen happen or how that circumstance may have uh, played out differently if uh, there had been a separate uh, ethics body? Well, I think in that situation, first of all, he was caught in the moment. Uh So, you know, I don't know that having an office of Senate ethics would have changed the outcome in that particular situation. Uh, certainly being able to say, oh, I want the Senate Ethics Committee to look at what happened, mm-hmm. uh, that's not going to buy you a whole lot of public credibility. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree that's part of what he recognized, was even if the Senate Ethics Committee looked at it, uh, you know, that wasn't really going to help him in the long run. And in a lot of ways, I think the Senate Ethics Committee would look at it and say, that's not in our jurisdiction if it happened before he came to Congress. So I don't know that in that situation an Office of Senate Ethics would have made a big difference. However, one of the other issues that I've worked on during my career is uh, creating uh, some of the so-called Office of Compliance, which was dealing with sexual harassment and discrimination in congressional offices. That was part of the Congressional Accountability Act that I lobbied on back in the 90s. Uh, But as we've seen now, you know, more than 20 years later, that office is not up to snuff. It's not up to really what's going on. Uh, some of the the uh, procedures are, are being challenged and changed. The House has passed a bill to try and create a new office to replace the old. That bill has gotten bogged down in the Senate. And that's really to deal with questions of sexual harassment or discrimination in congressional offices. So that's actually somewhat even of a different topic than the ethics issues which, again, would be handled either by the Ethics Committee or an Office of Senate Ethics. Now, you're the executive director of Issue 1. Issue 1 being, in the opinion of those part of this organization, the undue influence of money in American politics. How uh, have you been uh, making the case to members of the U.S. Congress that this is a big problem that needs to be addressed, and how has your work with these ethical issues kind of trying to restore more integrity uh, to the Congress related to your mission? Well, our, our slogan after uh, issue one is fix democracy first. 
one of the things I like to draw attention when I when I speak, especially at universities and other places, is that when our founding fathers, and they were fathers, there were not many mothers in the room, uh, but when they met in all those hot, sweaty months in Philadelphia, they spent a fair amount of time on one issue, that was slavery. And all the rest of the time, they spent mostly on the process, on how a democracy should work. So these issues uh, about how a democracy actually functions are absolutely key because they understood that in, a, in the case of how a nation governs itself, the means in a lot of ways does determine the outcome. So you have, you mentioned earlier that the information, the case that you try to make to many members of Congress about the need for ethics reform uh, is that this is something that their own constituents desire and demand. Of course, if you look for, at things from the politician's point of view, most Americans don't desire or demand anything. Generally, apathy reigns supreme. Uh, voter turnout remains relatively low. Those who do vote seem to be heavily influenced by uh, the paid political expenditures. Uh, and uh, so I guess the question I'd like to ask is, uh, to what extent are Americans taking democracy for granted? To what extent are they clamoring for change? And uh, what sort of threats to democracy uh, are we currently facing, given whatever the opinions are of the American people? Well, the American people have long been somewhat cynical about government, even from the first days of the republic. So in some ways, that is not a new phenomenon. But what we are finding now in poll after poll is that the concern about the swamp in Washington is pervasive. Uh, when you have an election where you have both Bernie Sanders on one side, you have Donald Trump on the other side, in a lot of ways, they ran on very similar issues and they attracted a base, one from the left, one from the right, with an analysis that Washington was broken. And particularly as Donald Trump, when he was running as a candidate said, you know, I've been a political donor, I know what it buys, and nobody's going to be able to buy me. Now, Bernie Sanders, you know, had a different straight, uh, had a different solution, but also talked about how the dysfunction has made Washington non-responsive to the people. The problem we have now is that the American people know there's a problem. The, the, it, the, the difficulty is they're not convinced there's a solution. And so we have a real challenge in front of us for the American people to once again feel that if they do want to get involved, let's say you have $100 of your hard-earned money that you want to give to a candidate of your choice or somebody you feel strongly about, right or left, how motivated are you going to be to give that $100 to a candidate when you know that a Sheldon Adelson can come in and drop $10 million or $50 million or $100 million? So, you know, part of the problem here is that there is a very huge disconnect, a chasm between what the politicians need to run their campaigns and what individual citizens feel like they want in their representation. And you know, those needs are totally misaligned at the moment. And what you're saying is that citizens feel as though the relative, relative power of what they're able to contribute is diminished due to the enormous sums contributed by other individuals. Well, individuals and interests. And, you know, after the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United, mm -hmm. it's not only that wealthy individuals are able to give huge amounts, it's that, you know, a lot of the dark money, whether, it, whether the sources be from individuals, from corporations, et cetera, mm -hmm. is funneled in. So the answer here, in issue one's perspective, is not to take money out of politics. I just don't think that's real. I don't think you're going to take money out of politics. 
The question is, how do you get more Americans to feel like they have skin in the game? That they feel that their voice is going to be heard? That the public, that the candidates that they vote for and the people that are in office actually have any incentive to be responsive to them as their constituents? And the problem we have right now is that if you go up and talk to members of Congress, they feel totally under siege. They're going out there raising money hand over fist every day, doing their call time as much as 40% of their time. And they have this feeling that they're going to go back home and somewhere in the last few weeks of their election, some interest is going to come in and drop like $5 million in the race. And they won't know where it's coming from, where, you know, who, who is the source of the money, what impact it's going to have on their race. So they're running scared continually. So are you more interested... So first of all, there's a few things I'm, I'm thinking of right now. Money doesn't need to have such an important role in politics. In fact, previous guests on Public Interest podcasts, European politicians, have said that they had spent years in their national legislature, decades, and without ever having raised a single dollar, euro, or other form of currency. That was all through the party, and they didn't actually need to fundraise for their own campaigns. So democracy isn't necessarily dependent upon the candidates fundraising in every country. So that's one thought I, I just would like to throw out there. Uh, the other thing I'd like to say is, well, you, let me, could, could you respond to that at least? Well, we have a, a, a Supreme Court uh, who, through a series of, de- of decisions, starting back in the Buckley decision and going on through Citizens United, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and there's a series of them, in which this, uh, the majority in the court has basically taken the position of, Justice, of uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, which is that money is speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fundamentally believe that that is a misconception about uh, money and speech, Certainly the ability to spend money uh, directly influences your ability of, to get your voice heard, but to conflate them like this court has done, I think, is a disservice to the American democratic system. So, you know, it's one thing to say you have the right to stand out on the street corner and say whatever you want under your free speech rights and not be arrested by the government. I think that's a fundamental First Amendment right. It's another question to say, and guess what? There can be no limitations placed on you and how big your speaker is to drown out any other person standing on that space. And I think what we have a system is now, it's not only are people being drowned out, but also you have a system in which people feel like they have no voice at all. And so, you know, having a privately financed campaign finance system, in my view, is no requirement to be a democracy. Uh, And doesn't mean there's not a role for private money. It doesn't mean that money doesn't have some impact on the elections. The question from a public policy perspective is, has our country achieved the right balance? And I would say our system is so far out of balance now that only a small number of people that, I mean, this is an astonishing statistic. Right now, about one half of one percent of all Americans give $200 or more to a federal candidate. One half of 1% of all Americans. So when Americans go around and say, oh, Washington doesn't listen to me and whatever, my answer is like, you're absolutely correct. They don't. They listen to their donors. And so this leads us on a path of an oligarchy uh, in the sense that when you have a very small number of people uh, upon which your public office holders are dependent, that's who they're going to listen to. You're begging the question here when they say that the candidates listen to the donors. Uh, why, you know, 
why are the the voters are the ones who put them in office. If the Koch brothers give someone $10 million, they're not able to give more individually more than two votes for that individual person. But that money is able to influence Americans who do actually vote. Uh, obviously, the, the politicians are elected by an electorate that is in, incredibly susceptible to uh, political expenditure. So when we're talking about solutions to the influence of money in politics, you can say, one, let's reduce the amount of money that in, that individuals or corporations or special interests are able to put into campaigns. Mm-hmm. But two, how are you able to inoculate the population from uh, being susceptible to the influence of those expenditures? How do you in- improve civic education, civil discourse, and participation in actual elections? Well, the first thing you have to do is ensure that when money is spent in these elections that that the voters and the citizens understand where that money is coming from. Uh, there is an old uh, kind of line from the Federal Communications Commission, which oversees television and, and uh, that kind of whole communications world. And that line is, listeners are entitled to know by whom they are being persuaded. What we had happen in the last election, I think, was essentially a very robust and successful propaganda campaign run by the Russian government and others. Uh, and it, in most of the modern campaigns, there's two games at play. One is to frame your opponent in a negative light, and you can do that in public discourse by running all kinds of television and social media advertisements. The other game is to make everybody so disgusted that most Americans just say, I don't want to play, this is dirty politics, and they don't vote. And I think what you saw particularly in 2016 was that a lot of Americans just said, I'm not going to vote for either candidate. And so you had a very small number of people. When you start breaking down how many Americans actually voted for the winning candidate, it becomes a very small number. In the primaries, only about 8 to 12% of Americans actually voted for Hillary or Donald in the primaries. So that means you have a huge portion of the American public that are sitting on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. They're doing so partly because they're busy. They're doing so partly because they're turned off by politics. But I think you have to understand that part of a political tactic and part of the strategy here is to turn the American people off and to make them where they don't want to vote. And so that is actually uh, often can be quite successful in terms of trying to figure out who's going to win. Because if you can motivate your base, then you're going to win that election. Look, in the end, people still at this point, though, given some of the reports about some of the interference with our election system, it makes you wonder. In the end, our elections are decided by who turns out to vote, right? And so, you know, you could have Mr. Adelson or the Koch brothers or give hundreds of millions of dollars, but people still supposedly have to go and vote. But you have a lot of sway if you have a lot of resources about who, who that electorate is and what they think about. You know, there's an old line about television that says, you know, television sometimes tells you what to think, but it's really better in telling you what to think about. Mm -hmm. And that's really the game in our political discourse right now. So we could spend a whole lot of time focusing on an issue that may not even be important to most people. But if there's a lot of noise about it, I I used to, you know, the example I always use was like Michael Jackson. We all cared about what happened to Michael Jackson. Why? Because we saw it on TV every day. Not because it was important to anyone else's life. So a lot of times, a lot of this money that you see spent in elections is doing a lot of different sophisticated things. It's trying to figure out who's going to actually turn out to vote. 
It's trying to say what define what the issues are in the campaign. It's a lot of it's targeted to different bases. If you're on the right, you know you want to gin up your constituencies on the issues that the right cares about. If you're on the left, you're trying to gin those constituencies up. But none of that really is uh, that money is built and being spent to try and say, oh well, let's just educate American voters and get them to participate more. Yeah. So. Uh so, you, so let's talk about some of the solutions that you are advocating for, that issue one is advocating for on Capitol Hill. Uh, we've already spoken about ethics issues. There are a lot of campaign finance reform issues I'm sure that you've been advocating for. What are some of the top uh, legislative priorities for issue one? Well, one of the top legislative priorities for us is dealing with dark money. And there are a lot of different ways uh, that you can try and approach this problem, dark money being money that is in fact pouring into campaigns and elections, but the sources of that money are able to remain in the dark because the organizations that are spending that money claim they are not political committees. If they are a political committee, they have to disclose where they're spending their money and the source of their money to the Federal Election Commission. But there are these other groups, these so-called 501c4 social welfare organizations or trade associations and they claim, oh, well, our primary activity is not uh, a political activity. So as long as we keep our expenditure below 50% of our money that we have, we don't have to disclose anything. And so there is, a, you know, a huge amount of money that's being spent through the dark money. And why is there resistance to adding more sunlight to this for members of Congress? Well, it's very clear. I mean, one of the things that was very clear after Citizens United is that even though corporations... Under, from that decision, had a right to use their tr corporate treasury funds to make expenditures to affect the outcome of campaigns and elections. Uh, there is, especially for consumer-facing corporations, a potential price to pay. The example that's well known in Washington is what happened to Target when it tried to get involved in a race in the Midwest. Um, they actually used corporate treasury funds at a state-level race to support a particular gubernatorial candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, that gubernatorial candidate was known as being anti-gay rights. Mm -hmm. So people started targeting uh, Target. Mm -hmm. They went and, you know, kind of said, why are you giving money to this candidate? I think they had a few demonstrations in front of the stores. And Target basically freaked out and mm -hmm. said, whoa, uh, we don't want to have this uh, backlash or potential backlash from our consumers. So they're like, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. A lot of corporations, particularly public-facing corporations, looked at that and said, wait a minute, we don't want to risk the backlash. We don't want people from the right or the left picketing in front of our store. So we're not going to sit there and go for Acme Corporation and go into our corporate treasury fund and give you know, to a super PAC that's going to run ads mm -hmm. because we don't want the consumer backlash. But they obviously have interests that they want candidates to pursue. So you read in giving that directly and publicly – you can give it to a dark money group. The dark money group can then go spend it, and you never get found out. Your hands are clean, mm -hmm. so nobody can trace the money back to you. And why would members of Congress not want to open that up? Because, uh, well, I would say what you're seeing now on the Hill is Democratic members generally are in favor of that, and Republican members aren't. And in my view, that's a pure political calculation led by Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate Majority Leader, which is saying... We have a system right now where our natural base, business people, corporations, et cetera, that are naturally usually the allies of Republicans, 
don't want to get the public backlash. They can give to the dark money groups. The dark money groups are not political committees, so they don't have to register. And look what the result is. We have a Republican president, a Republican Senate, a Republican House, and 34 or so Republican would, governorships. Would you say that more dark money tends to flow to the Republican Party on the national level? I think more does, but again, part of the problem here is we don't know uh, because it's dark money, so it's almost impossible to trace. So that's the first issue that we did tackle. Some of it's a disclosure issue. Some of it is, uh, you know, foreign money potentially seeping into the system. We have legislation that we've been working on that I helped draft up on the Hill called the Honest Ads Act that simply says, let's apply the same kind of rules that apply to television when you do advertisement to Internet and social media ads. Again, so that the person who's seeing those advertisements can make up their own mind about how they feel about it. But you not only need to see the message, it's important, as Justice Kennedy wrote, to see the messenger. So as we approach the end of this podcast, a few more questions transitioning over to, the, to you more personally, uh, to some extent. Uh, you've mentioned, we've been talking about the importance of reducing the influence of money and politics, reducing the, interests, reducing the influence of special interests. You're in somewhat of a paradoxical position where you are a registered lobbyist and you are trying to convince members of Congress to do X, Y, Z just as much as uh, British Petroleum or Coca-Cola is trying to convince members of Congress to do something as well. So is there, you, you referred to yourself as a public interest lobbyist. I guess, how would you say uh, you're perceived or received mm -hmm. by members of Congress differently than individuals who represent uh, big money interests who that have contributed great amounts to those members' mm -hmm. coffers? Well, it's a very big difference, I will tell you. <laughs> I don't make half as much as some of those other lobbyists if at all. Look, as a public interest lobbyist, you're going up and you have essentially three tools or three arrows in your quiver. You have the policy issues and what's right and what's good policy. You have often the media, the earned media, when they come and say, what's the real deal? Is this a problem? Is it not a problem? They depend on you to be that honest broker. And to some degree, you have the relationships that you've built up uh, you know, by understanding what the process are, you know, of how the legislative process works, what the motivations for politicians are. I would say I'm so light years far away from many of the other groups that you mentioned. For one, I don't give campaign contributions to members of Congress. I don't make contributions to PACs. I don't use the ability to uh, give money to candidates as my entry point. If you look, if you talk to most lobbyists in Washington, who I talk to regularly, both the K Street lobbyists and the public interest lobbyists, the main role that that money comes from, particularly in some of the, you know, the big interests, is it's ask access. I mean, you give a campaign contribution, you get in. I can't give a campaign contribution. I don't want to give a campaign contribution. Uh, so I have to find other ways of getting in and having that conversation. It makes me, you know, in some ways it's more intellectual, intellectually challenging because you don't have the money to get you in the door. Um, so you have to find other, you have to have the people, you have to have the media, and you have to have the good policy ideas. And those are the three weapons we have. We don't have the ability to say, we're going to give you a whole bunch of money to your campaign, or we're going to run ads in favor of you, or we're going to, you know, give this dark money contribution that's going to benefit you. Uh, and all those things are at play for many of the interests that play the game in Washington. Lobbying is a constitutionally uh, protected First Amendment activity, and I'm proud to be a lobbyist. But my tools are not the money in the politics system. Mine are the goodness of my ideas 
and the ability to understand the political moment and understand what is in the realm of the possible for members of Congress who want to do the right thing. And there are politicians in Washington and elsewhere who do. Sometimes it's difficult for them to figure out how to get that right thing done. And that's where my job comes in. And so a final two-part question for you, Meredith. Uh, I'd like to ask on your motivations and your legacy. I'd like to ask you to reflect upon why you've dedicated yourself to advancing the public interest through issue one when clearly having begun uh, working as a staffer on Capitol Hill um, and having developed relationships over decades in Washington, I'm sure had you wanted to, you could have transitioned to a more well-remunerated position. Why are you motivated to stay in the position that you're in? And two, uh, what do you hope would be the impact uh, and the legacy of your career when you come to its conclusion. Uh, please. Well, I think these issues, particularly democracy issues, are the most fascinating issues out there because they are the umbrella issue. I really do believe, you know, it is issue one, fix democracy first, because if you want good health care policy, good environmental policy, good education policy, you have to be able to free your elected leaders to use their best their, their best judgment and not to have uh, considerations from special interest money, et cetera, really being the decisive factor. So I think, look, it has, it has money, it has sex, it has power. This is, you know, what could be more interesting? So I think it's just an inherently fascinating issue. And these days, I think it is actually the challenge of our generation and, our, and the younger generation. We do have to earn democracy, and just because my parents had it doesn't mean that it will continue or that my son will inherit it. So you have to fight for it. This is a fight every day, and there's no perfect end. I hope my legacy is that, one, the people that I work with here at Issue 1 and others, um, I can help mentor them and, and teach them and uh, you know, help them serve a, an apprenticeship to learn some of the things I've learned over the experience, that I can uh, have a feeling that I fought the good fight, that, uh, that you know, democracy is, is something that uh, is a process. There's not an end to it. You don't say at some point, hey, it's done. And that, uh, you know, the intellectual, pure intellectual challenge of find, trying to figure out what is the best policy. I find that continually a challenge and continually kind of an interesting search of what is the best policy. And um, as long as that intellectual interest is there and the fight's in me, I'm going to continue it. And this has been Meredith McGeehee, the Executive Director of Issue One, a former Policy Director at Campaign Legal Center, the former Senior Vice President of Common Cause, and the former President of the Alliance for Better Campaigns, who speaks about an American perception, widespread perception of a broken Washington, where money is interpreted as speech in the United States, according to the Supreme Court and its recent decisions, which leads to citizens feeling as though they have no voice at all. She uh, articulates her position that all other policy issues in the United States stem from the primary foundation of a well-functioning democracy, and that every day we must continually earn our right to have a democracy. Uh, and ultimately, Meredith believes that uh, in her career, uh, dedicated to improving the functioning uh, of our democracy so, democracy so that it may be perpetuated for future generations is ultimately uh, the good fight and that she has fought the good fight. So Meredith, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. 
I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.